Hey guys, welcome back to the Allergy Partners Podcast. My name's Chelka, and today I'll be joined by three of our physicians to talk about biologic agents in various disease states. I'll be joined by Dr. Charles Joey Lane, who is a board-certified allergist immunologist who has practiced allergy in Lynchburg, Virginia with Allergy Partners since 2009. He is a past president of the Southeastern Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Society. He has experienced treating patients of all ages with asthma and allergic disease, including extensive use of biologic agents. We'll be joined by Dr. Nabil Farooqi, who is a board-certified adult and pediatric allergist and clinical immunologist practicing in Indianapolis, Indiana. He completed his training at The Ohio State University, then joined Allergy Partners in 2015, where he is a shareholder physician and board member. In addition to his practice in Allergy Partners, Dr. Faruqi is an assistant professor at the IU School of Medicine, serving as a core faculty member for the Allergy Immunology Fellowship Training Program. He is past president of the Indiana Allergy Society and highly engaged in educational programming and advocacy within its regional community. His clinical interests include patients with severe asthma and chronic sinus disease. I'm also excited to welcome back as my co-host, Dr. Ananth Diagarajan, as a board-certified allergist immunologist who provides adult and pediatric patient care at his office, Allergy Partners of Springfield, located in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. He has significant experience with managing patients, allergic diseases, and asthma with the use of biologics. Dr. T, thank you so much for co-hosting with me, and I'm going to pass off the mic to you. Thank you very much, Chilka, and welcome to the Allergy Partners Podcast. My name is Dr. Ananth Thiagarajan. I'll be guest hosting this episode. Today, I'm with two of my very, very good friends, Dr. Nabil Faruqi of Allergy Partners in Fishers, which is in suburbia, Indianapolis, and Dr. Charles everyone calls him Joey Lane of Allergy Partners of Lynchburg, Virginia. And I know that I've said this before, these guys are two of my really, really close friends. So I'm not going to call them Dr. Lane and Dr. Faruqi. I'm going to call them Joey and Nabil because that's how we talk to each other. And if by any chance we make fun of each other or rip on each other a little bit, it's okay because that's what we do all time. Um, Before we get started, I do want to disclose that all three of us have consulting relationships with some manufacturers of the biologic products that we might be talking about today. This is not a sponsored podcast, and this is not for any continuing medical education purpose or credit. So, Joey Nabil, welcome to the Allergy Partners Podcast. Thanks, man. Good to be with you. Thank you so much, man. Super excited. So, today's topic is biologics. I wanted to start with you, Nabil. Can you answer what are biologics? Sure. So, biologics are a, a new and novel class of medications which has been used for quite some time in the rheumatology and cancer world. They differ from regular medications in that. Uh, biologics are are created from other organisms such as you know mice or rabbits or other bacteria and their sequences are replicated uh, so that they can then be used for human use and target various either inflammatory markers or cell signaling molecules or cell receptors and so in the asthma space this is a very very new and novel space which has been making 
a lot of headway and and giving a lot of new uh, therapeutic options for our patients with severe asthma. Patients with severe asthma have a huge, huge disease burden. And so, you know, over the past several years, these options for biologic therapy, which are add-on for patients who have refractory asthma, it really allows for, you know, a higher level of therapeutic um, efficacy. Uh, We are going to get a little bit later into the different kind of disease states in the allergy world for which biologics have been FDA approved for. I think we'll all talk about our own experiences with it. How long have these types of medications been around for? In the allergy and immunology space, the first medication that was approved by the FDA was in 2003, which was omelizumab. Um, and so for the longest time, omelizumab was kind of the only player, and that was approved for, uh, for severe allergic asthma. And so from 2015 onwards, there's been an onslaught of medications pretty much year after year. Uh, the first one to come out was mevolizumab uh, in 2015. After that, you had reslizumab in 2016, 2017, you had venralizumab, and then you had gepilimab in 2018. So the big alphabet soup there. But one year after another, you had several other biologics uh, in our allergy and immunology field. Uh, come out and uh, you know I made mention to asthma earlier because you know initially all of these medications were approved for asthma but there are several other you know and not like you had alluded to several other conditions that we treat that you know these uh, medications can be used and just looking at my own little deep dive into violence I'm going to ask you guys a little quiz so I don't know if you remember what I did to the both of you in Amelia Island about four years ago all right so, I so thought we, we were had, never going to talk about that again. Right. I, have, I have no so, recollection of what you're talking about. Well, I, I promise you it had nothing to do with jellyfish things, okay? So what actually happened was we had our first annual AP Bowl. And if anyone knows anything about allergists, is that we are huge nerds, okay? And so, Speak for yourself. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, 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 and so Joey and Anand are sitting there with, like, team whatever they called themselves T-shirts with another friend of ours, Adrian. And me, the newbie, they put me with these two old guys, um, and, and, they're, and they're asking all these questions, like one after another. And I just take the three of them down. So, yeah, lay it on with the questions, man. That's not exactly how I remember it. Um, <laughs> what, just to just to follow up on on Nabil's um, answer earlier, there are so he talked about the biologics that are currently FDA approved, but there are many, many others that are in development or in the process of being studied in clinical trials that target other aspects of the immune system um, that potentially have roles in our patients with both asthma as well as other allergic diseases. So to actually piggyback on that, I think one of the things that we're that are looking at right now is for COVID treatment. The Regeneron has, is in phase three trials of uh, monoclonal antibodies that are potentially could be used as a treatment for COVID Um, especially before a vaccine comes out. So that's an example of a biologic that hopefully will show effective efficacy and get approval that could make a dramatic impact right now for many of us, uh, both in terms of treatment and maybe even they are studying it for prevention. Okay, guys, here's my, my question. What and when was the first biologic put uh, uh, that came to market? I'll give you a hint. Super common medication or treatment biologic super common treatment i'm sorry this was not on the list of questions you sent us earlier so i'm not prepared to answer so i this is this is probably the wrong answer but given how 
common and old it is. I'm going to say IVIG. Close, but not it. Joey? Okay. What is sesame seed, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> Insulin. Oh, oh Chilka knew it. She's on our Zoom call. She said she knew it. Oh, Chilka wins. I, I totally thought we were just talking about allergic disease. <laughs> All right. I didn't know I had to reach back and put my internal medicine hat on. That, that, that was a, a long diatribe, a very fun diatribe. Chilka, you get points. Yeah. Joey Nabil, <laughs> you lose. Um, okay, Joey, what's the... We talked a lot about the word biologic. We understand that it's a treatment. What makes a biologic different than quote unquote, a regular or traditional medication? Yeah, so I like to think of the biologics as really sort of more targeted therapies. So the other current FDA approved medications that we use in our asthma patients, inhaled corticosteroids, long acting beta agonists, leukotriene modifiers, and long acting um, muscarinic antagonists, are fairly non-specific and they don't also work for everybody. So I actually sort of use the sort of a military analogy. So, you know, imagine, you know, using an, an inhaled steroid or even an oral steroid, a leukotriene modifier, it's sort of like dropping a bomb from 30,000 feet and you really kind of hope you hit your target. And if you drop enough bombs, you're probably gonna eventually hit something. And it may or may not be what, what you're targeting. Whereas the biologics, I think, are really more like kind of a smart bomb. They're like a laser-guided missile that really kind of, you know, hones in on exactly um, what is specific target. And the challenge for us is sort of trying to identify what that target should be in these individuals. So in some individuals, it may be that targeting eosinophils is the main driver of their disease, and that's what we need to target. In other patients, it may be... Um, the mast cell, the, the allergy cell, and, and allergic antibodies that we need to target. Part of the challenge for us is, is really sort of figuring out, you know, kind of, hey, what's the, what's the best target uh, in this patient? So I like to think of the biologics as more of a targeted therapy um, versus sort of a more global or general therapy um, like you would use with a standard, you know, preventative inhaler. Yeah, and just to add on to that, um, um, Joey's 100% right, and and it's really interesting, and I just kind of thought of this as he was talking and said, you know, compared to, you know, some of the FDA-approved medicines that we have, you know, this is a more of a targeted approach, 100%, but then, you know, there's some conditions that biologics are now approved for that we really don't have FDA-approved medications for. You know, we're going to be talking about them a little later on, but, I mean, if you take chronic idiopathic urticaria, for example, there is no FDA-approved medications for refractory urticaria, you know, and oftentimes we're left traditional medications. On... Traditional medications. Correct, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, there's no traditional medications for CIU, right? For example, nasal polyposis. What traditional medication is actually approved by the FDA for the treatment of nasal polyposis? Nothing until actually these biologics came down. So, um, so although yes, absolutely, it's great for add-on as precision therapy, but in some instances, it may actually be your only option. Yeah, we're going to get to that a little bit later. We're going to talk about the different disease states. And just to piggyback on what you guys have said, what's really interesting is absolutely in a lot of disease states, we have this more targeted therapy. But one of the differences between biologics and traditional medications is because biologics are derived from actual organic materials or organic organisms, they tend to be more complex molecules than traditional kind of quote unquote chemical medications. Yet with that complexity, you actually sometimes have and often do have a more targeted 
a path of treatment. And we're going to get to this now. It really has made a, it's been a game changer in terms of helping the, the patients that we treat. So now focusing on in the allergy immunology world, what are the kind of disease states that we commonly use biologics for? And we sort of, I wanted to have this conversation in a somewhat a chronological order-ish of biologics that are approved for different disease states. So, Joey, I'd like to start with you to talk about chronic idiopathic urticaria. In chronic idiopathic urticaria, this condition is one in which patients experience chronic daily hives for longer than six weeks. And there is usually no cause identified. Um, this is not, you know, an allergen t- triggering this typically many times. In fact, it may be autoimmune in nature. But this is a very troubling condition. And the current treatment algorithm for chronic idiopathic urticaria is typically we start with second generation non-sedating antihistamine, so a cetirazine, fexofenadine, loratadine, something like that. And if the typical FDA-approved doses of one pill once a day uh, is not working, then the uh, the urticaria guidelines actually suggest going to high doses of non-sedating antihistamines, up to four pills a day. When that doesn't work, really the next step recommended by the guidelines is omalizumab, um, which is sold under the brand name Zolaire. And Zolaire was approved by the FDA for treatment of chronic idiopathic urticaria in 2014. And um, there were two studies that were done that led to the approval um, of Zolaire using two different doses. And actually some of our allergy partners, doctors, were participants in the clinical studies that led to Zolaire's approval. Zolaire, in the clinical studies showed a really remarkable improvement in both itch and chronic daily hive count. And, you know, I think um, Anant and Nabil, you guys can speak to this as well. You know, we've all seen patients who come into our office and they are absolutely miserable from chronic hives. And they have tried everything over the counter, every antihistamine known to humankind and they are still absolutely miserable and many times we'll give these patients um, their first dose using a sample in the office and within a day or two many of these people are remarkably better so this has been an absolute game changer uh, in the field of chronic urticaria and it has revolutionized the lives of many, many, many patients um, with this disease that just has a, who had a horrible quality of life prior to the approval of, of omalizumab. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I mean, part of that morbidity that patients experience in chronic hives uh, oftentimes can be from side effects of the medications that we give them. We're giving them, you know, four times the normal doses of antihistamines. We're giving them two, three different types of antihistamines. They'll be on uh, courses of prednisone, which have, you know, side effects of weight gain and you know, hypertension and, and, you know, mood changes and, um, you know, and and if you go to more, you know, immunosuppressant medications, um, then, you know, you're at risk of infection, high blood pressure, et cetera. So, I mean, just a mild view of of side effects and, you know, I mean, the side effect profile uh, for solar is so good that, you know, uh, you you definitely get that kind of benefit on both ends. Yeah, you know, I think all three of us are, you're going to hear the word game changer a lot, I think. (laughs) Because it truly, these classes of medications really have been game-changing in terms of treating our patients. You know, one thing that I struggle with now, those patients who have failed the high-dose antihistamines, just like uh, Joey talked about, we need to see that first before getting insurance approval for omalizumab or Zolaire. And we're going to talk a little bit later about why there's insurance approval necessary. Joey, back to you. We're actually going to 
I would like you to give us a synopsis on maybe asthma treatment and biologics. It's such a big topic that I we are going to separate this into its own uh, asthma treatment podcast because it's just such a large, large topic. But could you give us maybe a short summary of the use of biologics with asthma, which is, again, a huge, huge topic? Sure, yeah, I can do that in probably about three hours. So just um, hang on. <laughs> so um, no pressure, I, I, no pressure at all. Yeah, exactly. So um, Ananth, I know, I know you're a big basketball guy. So I'm going to use a little bit of a basketball analogy here. So um, Zolaire again was the first of these monoclonal antibodies, um, or um, omalizumab was the first of these monoclonal antibodies or biologics to be approved for asthma, and that was in 2003. And Zolaire was approved for moderate to severe asthma patients um, who were 12 years of age and older at the time, who had incomplete symptom re- control, incomplete asthma control, with medium to high doses of inhaled corticosteroid. Oh. Patients who were had failed those treatments were eligible to enter clinical trials with Zolaer. And um, Zolaer was kind of interesting because it really sort of changed how asthma clinical trials were done. So for the first time, you started to see, instead of the primary endpoints in these studies being improvement in lung function, we really looked at rates of asthma exacerbations. And what we found with Zolaer was that that in this patient population, they reduced asthma exacerbations by about 50%. So this was oh, a real- Joey, I'm going yeah. to pause right there. I, I, we can't, I don't want to gloss over that point. That is huge. The measuring asthma exacerbations versus depending on purely pulmonary function tests. Because in real life, we see this all the time where there are various pulmonary function tests, but they may not show us the clinical improvement that we're seeing, whether it be the, the patient's not in an exacerbation at that time, whether there might be a technique involved that they're not doing properly when doing the pulmonary function test. Measuring frequency, severity of asthma exacerbations is really in real life what is most important to these patients. So Absolutely. I, just, I, I didn't want to, that was such an important point I yeah. wanted to yeah, I mean, our patients don't come in and say, you know, Dr. T, I want to improve my FEV1 by 267 milliliters. That's right. They come in and say, you know, I want to stay out of the hospital. I want to stay out of the emergency room. I don't want to have these flare-ups. I don't want to be on prednisone anymore. So Zolaire, the, the mechanism of action, Zolaire binds to a molecule in the body called IgE, or immunoglobulinemia. And IgE is the protein in our bodies that is responsible for us being allergic to what have you. So dog dander, peanut, um, tree pollen, bee sting, whatever. And so what Zoller does is it binds to this IgE molecule and um, basically pulls it out of circulation. It forms a complex with the IgE molecule. So the IgE molecule cannot then be presented to the surface of the allergy cells. So in essence, the way I'd explain it to patients is it sort of turns the volume down on the allergic inflammatory rock concert going on in these patients' lungs and air. And it was, it, it was a, you know, to not to use the word again, but game changer. So, you know, I sort of think of Zola as kind of like the Michael Jordan. So it was the one of the first of these superstars to come out. But it's been followed by several others. Um, and so next were, were the what we call the anti-eosinophil drugs or the anti-IL-5 drugs. And this was Nucala or Mepolizumab in 2015, Rizlizumab or Syncare in 2016, and then Fasenra or Benralizumab in 2017. And these drugs 
they're, they're kind of like the Kobe Bryant's, right? So they're sort of the newer, you know, they're the next generation beyond Michael Jordan. And these drugs have been absolutely remarkable as well. So again, clinical studies with these drugs have shown typically reduction in asthma exacerbation rates of about 50%. They have also shown improvements in lung function as well, which again, patients don't always care about. It's sort of a surrogate marker. We care about it as sort of a, um, as a marker of risk of asthma exacerbation. But it is always nice to see not only reduction in asthma exacerbation rates, but improvement in quality of life and improvement in lung and these drugs target eosinophils, which are sort of your allergy white blood cells. So you find them in the lungs and airways of folks with asthma, and they get recruited to the airways by a variety of both allergic and non-allergic triggers. And they're really sort of the bad guy uh, white blood cell in the lung. So they're kind of like, you know, the, the bandits in the old Wild West. And what these, these um, biologics drugs what the anti-eosinophil biologic drugs do is they come in and either they kill the eosinophils directly or they take away what the eosinophils need to grow and survive. What, um, what my friend Bill McCann um, coined the term of feed and fertilizer for eosinophil. Uh, so they really sort of take that away and prevent the eosinophils um, from being able to survive and, and migrate out of the bone. Uh, and these drugs have had remarkable effects as well. One of the other great things about the anti-eosinophil drugs is they tend to work very quickly. So um, I have given patients a sample of one of these drugs in the afternoon, and they called the next morning and said they were already feeling. Lastly, in terms of asthma, we have dupilumab or dupixin. And dupilumab is sort of the, the newest um, uh, one. It has a little bit of a different mechanism of action. It targets actually two molecules uh, or two cytokines involved in the allergic inflammatory cascade. So it's kind of like the LeBron James. You know, this, it's sort of the, the newer kid on the block um, in terms of these biologic superstars. And dupixin was approved for asthma uh, in 2018. And one other point I should make is that both Zolaire and dupixin are approved for moderate and severe asthma patients. Nucala, Sincare, and Facenra are only approved for your severe asthma patients. That's it in a nutshell. Um, you know, I think I cut it down from three hours to about two hours and 50 minutes. Um, <laughs> we could easily spend a lot more time going into many, 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 many details of these um, different medications. Um, but these are the five that are currently approved by the FDA for asthma at this point. But again, as I said earlier, there are, there are many other drugs in, in late and early stages of clinical development. Um, so this is a really exciting time to be involved in treatment of patients with asthma and allergic disease because we're seeing finally the, um, the scientific discoveries that have been made over the last 20, 30 years really being translated into um, uh, medications that can improve the lives of patients. So, 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 so I have to say, as eloquent as Joey's um, uh, speech right now was, he could have stopped at Zoller because he called it Michael Jordan. All right. There's no conversation to be had about Kobe or LeBron when you're talking about Michael Jordan. All right. That's oh, all I, I don't know, my friend. I don't know. <laughs> Listen, don't and know. I'm born and raised in Cleveland. I love me some LeBron James. Okay. But Michael <laughs> Jordan is still Michael Jordan. Come on, everyone. Anyway. You know, I, I would like to pause on, on asthma. In terms of diseases in the allergic or asthma world, this is the one disease state where we really have the most options in terms of biologic treatments. Nabil, how do you, or how does one, choose which biologic to use in a certain asthmatic? Um, uh, take us through just a real basic kind of thought process. Thank you for that question, because honestly, that is that is such a great question. It is a question which has no right answer. 
um, because it, it you get 10 allergists in a room and you are going to get 10 different answers. But Joey said something which really kind of hits the crux of this entire space, which is like uh, that the biologics have essentially changed the way that we look and evaluate at asthma, right? I mean, uh, the entire trial designs were completely redone when biologics came out. And with that, when we started using biologics and looking at different efficacies and endpoints, not all biologics worked in all patients. The initial mepolizumab trials were complete and utter failures. And what it went back and showed us is that not all asthma is the same. And that's kind of what gave way to this concept of asthma phenotypes and endotypes, which basically means, you know, what are the patient's clinical features and characteristics which are which are they're, they're presenting with and what are the underlying immunologic mechanisms that are actually driving that asthma and and so to, to answer your question Anand you know you really have to get to the crux of that individualized patient who is in front of you what is truly the immunologic mechanism of their asthma which you are going to be able to elucidate by looking at certain clinical features are they allergic? Are they adult onset? Are they pediatric onset? Are they responding to steroids? Are they torticosteroid dependent? Are they frequent exacerbators? Are they having low lung function? Or are they patients that typical asthma therapies do not respond with? There are just so many different clinical characteristics which will um, point you into certain directions. And when I say directions, I mean quite literally immune pathways that might be driving it. And then you want to try to find biomarkers which might give you a clue into, you know, what immunologic mechanism is driving their asthma, but then what type of response you can expect and predict. Um, one of the questions that I get all the time, PCPs and um, uh, specialists alike, is that, you know, what do you do in a patient who has a high IgE? What do you do in a patient who has a high eosinophil count? They try to, you know, um, uh, algorithmize you know, a very complex discussion to be had about biologics. And what I tell everyone is that you have to go back and treat the patient, not the number. The the, the biomarkers that we look at, and, um, and kind of take it a step back for the people in the podcast. So, so, so when I say, you know, when the IgE is high, when the eosinophil counts are high, these are biomarkers we look at as surrogates of uh, inflammation to choose various cutoff points of what agent may work with what. So you look at an IgE level to dose solar or, or eosinophil cutoffs for the IL-5 uh, agents. And so, um, you know, just because somebody has a, an elevated eosinophil count does not necessarily mean that, you know, Syncare is the way to go or Nucala is the way to go. You really have to kind of get to the bottom of, of you know, that specific patient and, and what end point you're looking at. Are you trying to keep the patient out of the hospital? Are you trying to get the patient off of chronic corticosteroids? Are you, are you trying to improve their lung function? Because for me, in my practice, for each of those endpoints, that is a different drug. And that's really where precision medicine comes in. It is. I would agree completely with what Nabil said. One other point I would make is, you know, usually in, in medicine, the way to answer this question is you do a um, clinical trial. So you take patients and you, you know, who are as matched as you can match them uh, and you give them one or two or three or four or all five of these biologics. And then you see, you know, at the end of the day or end of the study, who does better? Well, the problem is these drugs are all very expensive. Um, none of the pharmaceutical companies are most likely ever going to do that study because they don't want to come out on the, you know, potentially risk coming out on being, coming out being on the losing end. Also, the, the way these drugs work is it's too 
cumbersome even for somebody like the NIH or the federal government to step in and do that trial because with Zolaire, you know, once you stop, you have to wash that. That drug has to wash out for six to 12 months before patients go back to their pre-treatment state. So, you know, you would have to have such a complex clinical trial design that it would take years to do these studies. And there's variability year to year in terms of patients' asthma symptoms. But by the time the study was even halfway done, there'd be other biologic options. And then people say, well, what about this one? So in all honesty, we probably never are going to get a definitive answer to that question. But I agree absolutely with Nabil. You you know, try to figure out what's driving the patient's disease, what what do you most want to improve upon, um, and and start with that. Don't don't just go by the numbers. Um, great answers, guys. I mean, just to add, this goes back to, you know, being a good doctor. It's taking a detailed history, spending time with your patient, understanding their specific story, and then looking at other data collection, whether that be pulmonary function tests, lab results, and making the hopefully the right decision for the patient. Just to add to that, there's also even things like practical considerations, um, home dosing versus in-office dosing, every two week versus every four week versus every eight week, depending on the the situation for that individual uh, person and, and what they're looking for. Uh, Nabil, uh, to get away a little bit from asthma and talk about other disease states, I'd like you to talk about biologics for, I'm going to combine two just in the in the uh, scope of time, uh, eczema and nasal polyps. Can you tell us about biologics for those? Absolutely, absolutely. So, so uh, this is uh, two disease states which are really good to go ahead and put together because the, the FDA approved biologic for the treatment of eczema and uh, for treatment of nasal polyps is Dupixin. So I'm going to go ahead and take a step back and kind of talk a little bit about how Dupixin works, and then that'll give everyone a little better picture about why it actually works in these two very, very different disease states, you know, skin rashes and then nasal polyps. What makes Dupixin uh, different and unique from the other biologics in the allergy and immunology world, what it does is it actually um, binds onto one portion of the interleukin-4 receptor, but that same portion is shared on two receptors, um, interleukin-4 and 13. And so essentially what it does is it gives you effect on two cytokine pathways, right? So when we talk about allergic cytokines, our world is interleukin-4, 5, and 13. And so if you look at the inflammatory cascade, interleukin-4 is pretty high up. It's actually what allows naive lymphocytes to actually skew and differentiate into type 2 cells. And type 2 cells are essentially you know, the MCs of the allergic inflammatory cascade. And they are what differentiate, um, you know, uh, B cells to cause IgE production. They're the ones that, you know, help recruit eosinophils uh, because they also secrete interleukin-5. Interleukin-13 is something which causes a lot more structural um, type of changes um, in in, uh, asthma, for example. It will cause bronchial hyperreactivity. It will cause uh, increased fibrosis and basement membrane thickening. It'll cause mucus secretion. And so if you look at these just kind of general concepts, like from the 30,000 foot view of antibody production, um, eosinophilic infiltration and inflammation, um, mucus production and fibrosis, these are kind of the pathophysiologic um, tenants of type two inflammation. And if you actually look at where we see type two inflammation um, in the various organ systems, in the nose and sinuses, in the skin, uh, in the gastrointestinal tract, uh, and in the lungs, that is exactly how you end up having various clinical diseases. So asthma, atopic dermatitis, nasal polyps, 
allergic rhinitis and eosinophilic esophagitis. And so, you know, there's a lot of common uh, uh, pathophysiology going on there. And so using and leveraging Depixent's uh, unique mechanism of, of shutting off interleukin-4 and interleukin-13, not only does it help reduce uh, some of the IgE-mediated infl inflammation and eosinophilic inflammation from its IL-4 targets, but also some of the structural fibrotic and inflammatory changes. And so when you look at polyps, that is what helps to actually shrink nasal polyps. It actually improves a patient's ability to smell. Um, you know, nasal polyps are essentially, you know, growths within your sinuses, you know, which cause uh, obstruction, chronic sinus infections, headaches. You know, you can almost think about it as, you know, allergies gone haywire. Um, and, and oftentimes, these are uh, things which um, uh, are, uh, need surgery, right, to be cut out. And so, you know, Dupixin is great at helping shrink those, uh, you know, anatomical obstructions, but then also, you know, allowing improved symptoms. And then similarly in eczema, you know, you're having inflammation in the skin, dryness in the skin, and by, you know, targeting those um, immunologic uh, uh, mechanisms, um, it can help reduce skin inflammation in both kids and adults. And so, again, I know we're using the word game changer a lot, but game changer in both of these disease states. So in the previous disease states, we've talked about chronic urticaria, asthma, eczema, um, not so much nasal polyps, but previously, if, if the traditional medications or treatments didn't help, we, we did have to use a lot of immunosuppressive treatments. These biologics have obviously been incredibly helpful in avoiding some of those medications. In the other sort of fields of allergy treatment, including food allergy, for peanut allergy, the only FDA-approved treatment is a biologic called palforzia that was approved in January of 2020. This is a very different medication, very different treatment because it is, but it is also a biologic. This is pretty brand new, but just to put out to the audience that this is an ever-growing field with even more and more disease states in the allergy immunology world for which we'll have biologics available. One thing we mentioned was that these alternative medications often suppress the immune system. Uh, Joey, do, do biologics, the ones that we've discussed, do they suppress the immune system? Are there any risk of increased infections with these types of treatments? Yeah, so great question. Um, and, and they really don't suppress the immune system in the traditional way. Allergic diseases sort of develop as sort of an overactive immune response to a harmless target, right? So, you know, peanut allergen is not out there to cause your body damage. Cat dander is not there to cause your body damage. So um, immune allergic disease is basically an immune response to a fairly harmless allergen. So suppressing allergic immune responses really does not increase your risk at all of infection from viruses such as COVID or any other ones bacteria, fungi, fungi, or anything like that. Certainly not the way that you see um, some of the other drugs that are advertised on TV that target rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, inflammatory bowel diseases. The immune pathways involved in, the, involved in those diseases are much more complex and, and much more uh, potentially involved in um, preventing infection uh, in the body. The one caveat to that is that um, we talk about all these medicines potentially having the risk of increasing your risk of a parasite or worm infection. Now, thankfully in 2020, we have other things to worry about besides worm or parasite infections. So um, none of these medicines are a contraindication 
But um, we do always say, you know, if you're traveling to areas where worm or parasite infections are endemic, you know, just let us know. Um, and if patients do get one of these infections and they're not responding to treatment, then they may need to stop the biologic till the infection clears uh, and then they can resume treatment. But no, they're not immune suppressing in, in the traditional sense of the word. And Nabil, talking more broadly about side effects with biologics, are these medications generally safe? What what are the side effects? And also, to add on to that, what about for patients who are pregnant? Anytime we uh, tinker around with the immune system, we're always worried about you know side effects and what are we going to do. And so, you know, what we're talking about today is precision medicine. And and one of the huge advantages of precision medicine is that you're not getting this shotgun approach of suppressing you know, large chunks of your immune system uh, that you would normally with like, you know, prednisone or cyclosporin and things like that. And so because it's very, very targeted, thankfully, you know, you, the side effect profile is also very favorable. But just like any other medication, you know, side effects are to be seen and something that we have to be very cognizant and aware of. Um, there are a couple specific unique features to biologic therapy themselves in terms of side effects that we do need to kind of keep an eye on. Um, you know, um, um, anaphylaxis is, a, is one of them, right? So anytime you inject you know, a foreign protein, which is what monoclonal antibodies or biologic therapy is, um, into the immune system, your immune system will recognize it, right? Your immune system is going to go in and say, hey, this is a foreign invader. This is not supposed to be here. Most of the time, what it does is it just develops an a, a, a anti-drug antibody and just kind of hangs out there, right? Um, uh, the clinical significance of those anti-drug antibodies in terms of any long-term neutralizing effects are not really known. But sometimes what happens is that this IgE anti-drug antibodies may develop into a hypersensitivity response, right? And so there is a chance of patients having allergic reactions to the biologic medications. Those are extremely rare. Um, uh, right now, Zoller is the only one that actually even has the recommendation on label that you have to have epinephrine on it. Although um, um, now that they have so much data showing safety of it, that is probably going to get eventually to come off as well. So right now, you know, it's up to you know the prescriber to use their judgment to see if anyone needs an EpiPen or not. So, but you know, hypersensitivity reactions can happen. Um, and then, uh, you know, with regards to pregnancy, um, you know, monoclonal antibodies again are just like our own antibodies. So once they're in your system, they're circulating throughout your your bloodstream. And so um, antibodies do uh, pass across the, the blood placental barrier, more so in the second and third trimester. And so um, biologic medications will pass through into the fetal circulation. However, fortunately, no adverse fetal effects have been reported up until now. And all of the uh, biologic companies have active uh, pregnancy registries um, uh, going on. And so if we have any patients who are pregnant that we're thinking about starting on biologic therapy or um, while they're on biologic therapy become pregnant, it's highly, highly encouraged to actually get those patients enrolled into pregnancy registries um, so that they can be monitored. Also looking at another aspect of this treatment is the, the sort of cost of these treatments, um, the, the insurance coverage, uh, does it lead to you know, patients having to pay a lot of money for these treatments? Um, and then as well as the cost of 
these treatments to the, the healthcare system as a whole. It's a, it's a huge broad topic, which again is another like five hour conversation. Yeah, so it's a, there's a lot wrapped up in there, right? So yes, these medicines are expensive, but it's also really expensive to take care of very, very bad asthma patients, right? So, you know, a, a, a number that I heard quoted one time is that um, about 5% of all asthma patients account for 50% of the spending every year on asthma. So these are really the patients that we, we're targeting. We, we're not talking about using these medications in your mild or, or even most of the time moderate asthma patients. These are really kind of the sickest of the sick patients. The patients that are very exacerbation prone, that are coming into the office, going to the emergency room, getting hospitalized multiple times a year, that, this, these are the patients where these medicines really, really have the potential um, to, to impact and, and actually save money over time. We know that there are lots of downstream side effects associated with courses of oral steroids like prednisone. It increases your risk of pneumonia. It increases your risk of osteoporosis. It increases your risk of diabetes, even cardiovascular disease eye problem. So, you know, things that we, you know, prednisone may be cheap in the short term, but in the long run, there are lots of costs associated with that. So, you know, it, it is it is a challenge. Uh, it is something that we as society kind of have to deal with. But, you know, for these medications, for I mean, I, we've all seen these medicines make such a huge improvement in, in patients' lives that just you really, they go from night and day. And I don't think you can put a cost, you can't put a dollar amount on that. Um, that's why we're all in this business is to, to for those success stories uh, and to try to help those those people. And it's so rewarding when we're able to do that. So, so I, uh, I, I 100% agree with Joey and that, that is actually my personal belief. Um, just for completeness, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna play devil's advocate just to kind of present the other side of that because there is data to show this. And so, um, so, so you asked the question in two parts and actually to the, to the patient, it is, in terms of the cost of the patient, it, it is very favorable. You know, uh, I will say for as expensive as these medications are, the pharmaceutical companies have done a great job in, in providing access uh, for patients. And, and most of the time patients are not really paying much at all. I mean anything from you know a copay to sometimes zero dollars right and these medications can cost like you know 15 20 thirty thousand dollars um you know annually uh, uh, to treat and, and if you're on this for you know 5 10 15 20 years or for the rest of your life you know that can add up and so uh, in, in terms of cost to the patient you know this is a very viable option for those patients in whom it's clinically indicated and they can greatly benefit from. In terms of cost of the system, that's, that, that is a very tough conversation because I actually 100% wholeheartedly agree with Joey that you know the disease burden on the system of these patients is huge and the amount of time that it takes for us to care for these patients is also huge. And in terms of the actual data that is out there, it actually shows that biologic therapy um, is not cost effective. So there was actually a clinical review done by ICER, which is the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review um, which showed that for biologics to actually be cost effective, they have to reduce their actual cost to the system by 50 to 60%. And so in their current state, they're saying for the, and, 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 and this is where I kind of disagree with that, they said for the quote marginal gain um, that the patients actually make, uh, it does not justify the cost on the system. I would argue that it's much more than marginal gain, but, but there is an argument to be made that the cost of the system for chronic biologic therapy in a large population 
is quite high. Yeah, I do. We don't know, you know, you know, the 20, 30, 40 year long term um, outcomes, because, you know, we may be able to save hospitalizations, we may be able to reduce, um, you know, some of these other long term costs and comorbidities. So yeah, they, I, I agree. I, I thought that study was interesting. Um, Nabil, uh, a little bit, somewhat maybe surprising, but but yeah, agree. Yeah, I, yeah. I actually agree with both. I, I think the the benefit to the patients is so dramatic. I disagree a little bit with the methodology of that. I think we all, all three of us do, of that um, ICER uh, report. For those of us who are actually on the ground treating these patients who literally in some cases can't breathe and then they can after treatment, breathe. I mean, it just makes a huge, tremendous difference. They're able to go back out of society. In some cases, they weren't working and they're able to find jobs again. And for instance, in young children with severe eczema who um, can't even go to school because it's so bad with certain biologics, they're able to go to school. And a lot of patients with peanut allergy who are have an incredibly reduced quality of life because of concern of accidental ingestions of peanut leading to severe allergic reactions. You know, there's biologics now available for those patients that really dramatically change their quality of life. So, you know, we've used the term game changer a lot on this podcast, but I think all three of us agree that we're very thankful that these treatments, these biologics have become more and more available for more and more disease states in terms of things that we treat in the allergy and immunology world. Um, well, I wanted to thank both Dr. Nabil Faruqi, Allergy Partners of Fishers in, in, outside of Indianapolis, as well as Dr. Charles Joey Lane of Allergy Partners of Lynchburg, Virginia. My name is Dr. Anantia Agarajan. I'm Allergy Partners of Springfield outside of Washington, D.C. And Chilka, thank you as always. And I am going to shout out the uh, non-audio participant, Raquel, who it helps us on the back end tremendously with putting all these together. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you guys. I want to thank, thank you guys so much. Thanks all guys. Of you as well. And remember our family's here to help your family. Thanks guys.